Ready? <laughs> I'll echo the sentiments there, not on the prayers, but I need a jingle as well, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what we're going to take away from this. Let's let's be perfectly honest. That's what we're going to take away from this morning, isn't it? The worship, the preach, we need a good jingle. If you've got that, you're there. (laughs) Okay, so look, um, good morning. Welcome to uh, this continuing series on the pillars of our faith. Uh, Last week, Danny started this series with the idea that there are a set of core beliefs that are central to our faith. Uh, these are the pillars on which our faith rests. And this morning I want to look at the first of these, uh, which is sola scriptura. It's, it's a Latin phrase, don't worry if you didn't quite catch that. It's a Latin phrase, but it means scripture alone. Uh, in a nutshell, the idea being expressed here is that scripture, the Bible, is our final authoritative definition of truth. Whatever anybody else might say, whatever anybody else might preach, whatever theology or ideas they might come up with, they ultimately have to fall in line with Scripture. And if anybody says something that doesn't line up with Scripture, then that is something that could be challenged and is wrong. Now, It's a simple idea, yet in our modern liberal theology, or in our modern liberal world, society, there's some, actually some even in the church, that will ask and question, to what extent can we still defend that viewpoint today? Just just try asking or saying to any of your non-Christian friends that, that you believe in this book, and this book defines how you live your life, and see what reaction you will get. You know, many people in the world today see this as outdated, old-fashioned, irrelevant, not a voice to be listened to. They'll put their trust in other voices, other messages. So this is a vital topic for us to consider today. And yet we're talking about scripture, so let's start with a verse as a springboard to launch us into this topic. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, well-known passage, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the power that there is in that word to transform lives. Help us this morning just to grasp the importance of Scripture. Help me to convey clearly the ideas and the things that I want to share. Just bless us this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs> now, the idea that we should align ourselves to Scripture and it should be our one clear guide sounds simple, but there, there's a rich history behind this. As I said before, it's a Latin phrase from over 500 years ago. And along with the other four solas that we will look at in this series, uh, summed up the teaching and doctrine of the Protestant Reformation a movement that we're part of because whatever sort of name or title you might give to this church and churches of a similar vein, we are ultimately Protestant as opposed to Catholic. That's our heritage and our history. So this isn't just an abstract historical debate. 
uh, the authority and place of Scripture, as I've already pointed out, is, is under threat today. And so we need to, to know the story and to know where we defend and align ourselves to this book. So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at uh, what this means. But a little bit of a history lesson first. If we go back over 500 years now, Martin Luther is the person most readily associated with the Reformation. And in 1517, he had pointed out a number of things that he was uncomfortable with, with the Catholic Church as it then was. Things like purgatory, things like you could pay for your way into heaven, or buy your way into heaven by praying or paying for people to pray for you. He said, I don't find these in scripture. These seem wrong ideas. He was challenging those. He was protesting. And therefore, the people, him and the people like him, inherited that label of Protestants because they protested against things they disagreed with. Now, this caused such an uproar that four years later, in 1521, Luther was effectively summoned to the headmaster's study. He was called before the headmaster, a church body, to basically give an account of what he'd said, given a last opportunity, if you like, to take back what he had said. Because at the heart of this debate was a very simple idea. How does God reveal himself to men and women? How does God reveal himself to us? Because Luther and the Catholic Church agreed that there were two ways that God revealed himself to men and women. He revealed himself through creation. You look up in the night sky and you see the stars, and it's amazing. Uh, that verse in Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. You don't need to read anything. You can just look at the, the stars, the intricacy of a leaf, and see something of the glory of God there. The second way that God reveals himself is, of course, through Scripture. We have the Word, we have the Gospels, we have the whole Bible. God speaks to us through Scripture. And that was fine. Luther and the Catholic Church, they, they were aligned on that. They said, that's great. Those are two amazing ways in which God speaks to us. The problem came, and why Luther is here in the headmaster's study, the problem came because the church, the Catholic Church, saw another way that God revealed himself to men. And they said, equally important are the words and the rules from the Pope. The rules and the laws and the things that the Pope says were seen as equally important to Scripture himself. And Luther wasn't comfortable with that because he said, well, look, the Pope, as much as he's a nice guy... He's an ordinary human being. He's a fallible man. He could get things wrong. And if he says something and something gets written into church law that doesn't line up with Scripture, then because we've given his words such authority, we can't kind of take them back. And Luther was effectively saying, the Pope isn't perfect. And he's up before the headmaster as a result of that. Now, Luther ultimately lost that debate. He was dismissed from the church. He was branded a heretic. But his closing remarks have gone down in history. This is what Luther said at the end of that debate. He said this. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reasons, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, 
since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. Here I stand. I can do not otherwise. May God help me. Amen. Scripture alone, he was saying, defines what is right and true. And down through the ages, other men and women have stressed and affirmed this point. William Symington, a famous Scottish preacher from the 19th century, said, Our object should not be to have Scripture on our side, but to be on the side of Scripture. And however dear any sentiment may have become by being long entertained, so soon as it is seen to be contrary to the Bible, we must be prepared to abandon it without hesitation. That definitely sounds like a Scottish 19th century guy talking, doesn't it? Um, If you want something a little bit more modern, uh, Derek Prince said, uh, we're living in a time where it is increasingly necessary to emphasize the supremacy of Scripture over every other source of revelation or doctrine. But let me get to the heart of what I want to share this morning. Because as great as those quotes are, what do we really mean by sola scriptura? I want to do something a little bit unusual this morning, and I want to tell you what sola scriptura does not mean. I want to give you a number of things that it doesn't mean, and then hopefully we'll get to at the end what it does mean. Because I'm sure at many times when you have said to people around you, I believe in the Bible, or people just know you're a Christian, their response is, you can't possibly believe in this because of dot, dot, dot. You you fill in the end of that sentence to whatever somebody has said to you. You can't believe in that book because of dot, dot, dot. Well, I want to look at those dot, dot, dots this morning. I want to look at the reasons why people say you're foolish to believe in this. So very quickly, I've got six things. Wow, you normally get three from me. You're getting six this morning. Six things that sola scripture does not mean. Firstly, sola, sola scripture does not mean scripture is our only source of authority. When we talk of the Bible being a voice of authority, we don't mean that Scripture is the only voice we listen to and everything else is blanked out and ignored completely. Um, If I'm trained to be a doctor or an engineer, then there's some other authoritative texts that I need to read. Luke, I guess from my history, Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, was a doctor. I can read the Gospel of Luke as much as I like. It's probably not going to help me pass my medical exam. If my car breaks down, I will listen to the voice of authority of, well, I was going to say a car repair manual. For me, it will be the voice of authority from the guy in the garage that says what's wrong with my car. And if I'm looking for something to eat for lunch, Jamie Oliver is my voice of authority rather than Scripture. There's some kind of interesting recipes in here. The manner that they ate in Exodus sounds quite tasty, but I'm going to be opening up Jamie Oliver if I'm not sure what to eat for lunch. So there are other sources of authority that we go to, but whatever we read in them, whatever they say, will not or should not contradict Scripture. 
Scripture is our ultimate source of what is true. So we don't dismiss everything else, but it should line up with Scripture. Secondly, Sola Scriptura does not mean that there are never any difficulties or minor errors in translation. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. If we're just talking about the Gospels for a moment, if you want to truly understand the Gospels, you better learn Aramaic and learn it fluently. Now, we're probably not going to do that. But the Gospels were translated into Greek and Hebrew and then into Latin and then into English. And it would be naive to imagine that that was a 100% perfect process. God uses fallible human beings to preach the gospel, to translate scripture, to write commentaries, to define theologies. And they don't always do that perfectly. And many who would argue against our faith would, would, would point to errors like that, very, very minor errors, and say, on the basis of that, your whole Bible is invalidated. Let me give you some humorous examples, then we'll look at some more, more pertinent examples in a moment. A 19th century version of the Bible uh, had been incorrectly or incorrectly translated Mark 7:27, which says, let the children be filled as let the children be killed. It was known as the murderer's version. <laughs> There's a, there's a 16th century version or translation that has Jesus saying, blessed are the placemakers rather than the peacemakers. And there was a rather interesting American version which talked of the parable of the vinegar rather than the parable of the vineyard. Now, those are just typographical errors. They don't detract from the authority of Scripture. But accurate translation is difficult at times. Take a well-known passage that we read every Christmas from the beginning of Luke's Gospel. We know this. This is part of our nativity story, isn't it? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered in his own town. Nothing seems wrong with that. We read it every Christmas, don't we? Now, we can place this event historically. We have Herod on the throne. As the story progresses, it's Herod that orders the children killed uh, to, 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 to uh, kill baby Jesus. But we know of these events from other historical documents, and most would agree that Herod actually died at least eight years before Quirinius was governor. Put simply, Quirinius could not have been governor when Mary and Joseph made that journey to Bethlehem. Now, does that invalidate this Bible? Well, no, because uh, a better explanation of the word that we translate as first census is the Greek word protos. And a number of scholars point out that that word can mean first. It can also mean before. So an equally valid translation of that passage is this was the, the, um, the registration before Quirinius was governor. Now, depending on what version you have of a Bible, you may find a footnote to that effect, giving those two different definitions in your passage of Luke. So... 
Other people would say, um, well, okay, we'll give you that one. Surely, though, within here, there are other errors, there are other difficulties waiting to be found. Surely you've translated something in here wrong and misunderstood something else. Interesting story, in 1947, uh, scholars were actually a good way through writing a new translation of the Bible, or translating a new translation of the Bible, one that ultimately became the, the, the Revised Standard Version, the RSV, a very popular version even today. Um, and in 1940, and when they were doing that, you see, when you translate the Bible into more modern language, they didn't have the original scrolls that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John penned. You know, those things don't exist anymore. They were working with older copies. And in fact, the copies that they were using dated from the 17th century. And the danger was there's a 1,700-year gap where you've made a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And surely people say, well, errors have crept in. It's kind of a biblical Chinese whispers. You know, how can you trust that what you've translated from the copy of the copy of the copy has got any truth or validity at all? Well, in 1947, they also was the year that they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe something you're aware of. It was uh, they found in Jerusalem, in these pots, uh, much earlier versions of the Bible, not dating from the 17th century, but dating from the 3rd century. Suddenly, the, 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 this 1,400-year gap had been closed. And what the scholars did is actually stopped the translation work. They said, right, here we are. This is the best we've got now, this 17th century manuscript. Here's now these 3rd century manuscripts that we've got. Do the two line up or have errors crept in over the years? And they found there were no errors. There were no errors. The gospel, the Bible, had been accurately translated down through all of those millennia. And so we have this enormous confidence in the accuracy of what we read, albeit with the limitations of translation and the fact that we very often from the front there have to say, well, there is this Greek word that has a couple of meanings and it could mean this and it could mean that. All of that's right and doesn't invalidate the legitimacy of Scripture. Thirdly, sola scriptura does not mean that every event is recorded in exactly the same. I hope this is helpful. I hope this is the sort of stuff that people have kind of said to you. Well, I don't believe in the Bible because. Um, so anyway, it does not mean every event is recorded in exactly the same order. What about the fact that different gospel writers seem to order the events in different ways? Take two well-known gospels and two well-known events. Uh, Matthew and um, um, I can't find which one. Matthew and Luke. There you go. Matthew and Luke and two well-known events: the calming of the storm and the healing of the paralytic. Well, in Luke, or rather in Matthew, Jesus calms the storm in chapter eight, and in chapter nine he heals the paralytic. Famous, that famous one: "Take up your mat and walk." In Luke. The paralytic is healed in chapter 5, and the storm isn't calmed until chapter 8. So who's right, Matthew or Luke? What does that difference do to the inerrancy and the accuracy of Scripture? How can the Bible be trusted, people would say, when the two people who are closest to Jesus can't even get the story in the right order? And they would dismiss the whole Bible. 
Well, imagine for a moment that someone was following Jesus around for the three years of his ministry with a kind of a video camera, recording every word, every action, every deed. And uh, many people imagine that the Gospels that we read are, if you like, a transcript of that. Somebody has literally taken that video recording and dictated in precise order the events that occurred. Well, that actually doesn't happen. Uh, Many of the Gospel writers would, would take events and group them together in themes. Like I'll take all the parables to express the idea of the kingdom of God rather than giving you a literal chronological event or timeline of when they occurred. I don't know if you're a person that reads modern biographies of famous people. You know, modern biographies. Very often when you read those today, the writer will order the events under common themes. It won't necessarily be a strict chronological um, timeline. Uh, many of you know, I, I'm a great sort of um, I know, interest of mine is manned spaceflight. I love that, the story of the guys that went to go to the moon. You know, if you read the, the biography of anybody who walked on the moon, where does the biography start? It doesn't start with them growing up and learning to fly. It starts with them walking on the moon. And then you have a flashback and you tell the rest of the story. It's not chronologically correct. But we don't dismiss those biographies. We don't dismiss the Bible because events aren't quite in the right order. Let's just pause there for a moment. I just want to sum up those last three points. I love this quote from Matthew Barrett's book on the authority of Scripture. Uh, He says this, The content of Scripture is so powerful that it overwhelms any human errors from the translation of the original divine message all the way down the line. And despite translation and other problems, it works for people who speak many different languages at different times in history with different social statuses, etc., etc. Ultimately, it works for whoever has ears to hear. Okay, let's move on. We've got three. I've got three more to do. Let's, let's keep going. Fourthly, sola scriptura does not mean that different people will not interpret scripture differently. One of the biggest arguments presented by non-Christians about the authority of scripture when they want to challenge our belief in the Bible is they say, well, actually, you Christians themselves, you can't agree on what these passages mean. You've got these people that say this and you've got these folks that say that. You can't even get your own story right. Now, um, when we were preaching through Revelation last, uh, last autumn, I, I took great pains to kind of say that, look, there are different viewpoints that have been given by true men and women who are trying to understand Scripture and doing their best to understand and interpret that. And because there's different viewpoints, that in itself doesn't invalidate Scripture. In fact, sticking close to Scripture helps to to define some boundaries in which those debates can take place. So we can still debate different things, have different viewpoints... But there are nevertheless core beliefs that we hang on to, that we, should, we, we do not debate, we do not challenge. Um, in fact, over the years, and the church has had to address this over the years, what is something that is non-negotiable? 
What is something that we don't debate? That we, we lose our very Christian faith if we, if we start to discuss or deny or debate that. And, and over the years, there have been what are called um, creeds that have been issued, statements from churches that have sought to define truth. Uh, one of the most powerful ones uh, came out in 381 AD from something called the Council of Constantinople. I guess it was a council that met in Constantinople. That's why it was called that. Um, you can read it, you can Google it and read it. It's a powerful statement of what we absolutely truly believe in. I won't read it all because it's quite long, but here are just a couple of bullet points from it. Uh, if we, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. We believe that he became human. For our sakes, he was crucified unto Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried. He rose again on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Again, anybody that would have a theory that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we can say, no, that is wrong. That is wrong. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Remember when we were going through Revelation, I said, guys, we could read this passage in all sorts of ways. What's the one truth? What's the core message that goes through that? However we interpret it, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and for the life of the world to come. That's probably about a quarter of that creed. Please Google it, read it. It's the non-negotiables of our faith. But... There are many other things that we can debate and discuss and have different viewpoints on. We can debate that old chestnut of how old is the universe. Is the universe billions of years old, as modern cosmological models would suggest, or is it just thousands of years old, as a literal reading of the biblical timeline would suggest? To what extent should Genesis be read literally or figuratively? Now, it's good to debate those things as long as we recognize that our salvation is based on the risen Lord Jesus, not the age of the universe. Um, my academic background, if I've got one at all, is in this area, in cosmology and astrophysics. It's a subject that I love. If you come around to my house, you'll find the, the structure of the universe by J. Nalika sitting on my bookshelf next to the Holy Bible. Uh, there isn't a conflict there. There isn't a, dis a disconnect there. Uh, I'll very happily discuss this subject with you at another time over coffee if you want. I can see both sides of that debate. The one thing I have come to realize over the years is it's not a terribly important issue to resolve or stand upon, at least when compared to the statements made in the creeds. So I'm not going to open that whole science or religion debate you will say. But I love this quote from Stephen Jay Gould, um, one of the most influential um, biologists of modern times, who famously said this, uh, science gets to the age of rocks, religion gets to the rock of ages. Or science studies how the heavens go, religion studies how to go to heaven. There's no disconnect there between science and religion. So while Sola Scriptura would say there are, there are areas of our faith that are unquestionable, debating other areas is fine. Debating other areas is fine, and in actually cases, many cases is healthy. Fifthly, Sola Scriptura does not mean Scripture exhaustively covers all the areas we might want, 
or even expect it to cover. Related to the previous point, I would have loved God to have said more about the creation of the universe. He decided not to. I'll have a chat to him one day when I see him. Um, But he didn't do it because he wasn't writing a scientific textbook. He was writing a book on how we find salvation, which again is a slightly more important subject. But, But so often I've heard that phrase, why doesn't the Bible say more about dot, dot, dot? Why doesn't the Bible say more about slavery? There's a topical subject for today, isn't it? I'm picking these things up with like 10 minutes to go. My way of doing it. Why doesn't the Bible say more about slavery? We can't trust in that. Uh, It seems to be, what do we make of a God that commands his people in Deuteronomy as they enter the promised land with these words? However, in the cities of the nation, the Lord your God is giving you. This is God speaking to his people. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We have a word for that today. It's called genocide. And people that commit it are guilty of the most serious war crimes. How do we reconcile a God of love with the God of the Old Testament that gives commands like that. Now, of course, we could fill a whole morning looking at subjects like that. But let me say very briefly, again, the Bible was written solely and singularly so that we might find God. There are whole areas and subjects which may be incredibly interesting or relevant to us, but the Bible won't mention or will comment on only briefly because they're not pertinent to that single question, how might I find salvation? The Bible does, by the way, say a lot about slavery. The God of the Old Testament, as far as the people of Exodus were concerned, was a God who freed them from slavery. Paul's letter to Philemon uh, takes up barely a page in our Bibles, but one writer has described it as a cultural time bomb for the first century. Paul is sending a runaway slave, Onesimus, back to his master, Philemon, with the, and encouraging Philemon to embrace him now, not as a runaway slave, but as a brother, because he has found the faith. The two of them can be one in the faith. The very concept of master and slave is overwhelmed by this greater truth of, are you in the kingdom of God or not? Now, again, I... So that's a big subject. Can I actually, if you want a book, to, if, if the morality of the Bible and these sort of questions are something that, that interests you, um, read this book, Is God a Moral Monster? by Paul Copen. I can give you the ISB number afterwards if you want it. I found this really helpful in trying to understand some of those really tough passages in Old Testament that talk about God telling his people to just wipe out whole people groups. Uh, the whole slavery issue, the whole sort of morality issue of the Old Testament, Paul Copen deals with that very well in, in that particular book. I say I found that very helpful. And then lastly, sola scriptura does not mean that verses have authority when separated from their context. Just about every Bible commentator or teacher will declare that the context of a verse is as important um, as it, to get its wider meaning and significance. The Bible is an enormous book with many different styles of writing. You can find a verse to justify just about anything in here if you want to just pick the words out of the passage and divorce them from the context in which they were written. 
There's a famous story of a man who opened scripture for guidance. He said, God guide me. He opened the Bible and he turned to Matthew 27 verse 5, which says, Judas departed and went and hung himself. (laughs) He didn't like that, so he said, let's do that again. He opened the Bible again and it said, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. (laughs) You laugh. We don't read and apply scripture in that way, do we? But many people will. Many people will grab hold of a verse and say, that means this. Or with a stretch of an imagination, I could make that verse mean that that's okay, that's acceptable. When the whole weight of other verses and the rest of scripture says no. We cannot rip a couple of words out of this book and build a theology around it. Let's take another controversial verse. We don't, many, we don't preach on this passage very often. No, I'll do that one. Let's, let's preach on this. My, my passage for today, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. You don't hear many sermons on that verse these days, do we? If someone to, were to measure our meeting this morning by that verse alone... Then someone might conclude that Sola Scriptura is not terribly high on our agenda. Sarah did a great job teaching our kids this morning. That, is that at odds with what I've just read in 1 Corinthians? How do, we, how do we sort that verse out? You see, that verse has to be seen in the context that it was written. Paul was writing to a particular church about a particular issue. He was in fact talking about orderly worship. And actually, when you read 1 Corinthians 14 in that light, there are many instances actually when the men are told to shut up as well. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most. In other words, all of you be quiet. We need to take these verses in context. So the scripture does not mean that we can lift a verse or a couple of words out of context and build a theology around them. Rather, any theology or belief we will have will be reinforced by all of Scripture. All of Scripture. Let me start to sum up. We have covered a lot of ground this morning, but what I've really sought to do is to counter some of the reasons that people have for saying you can't possibly believe in this book today because dot, dot, dot. It's not to be trusted. It's not authoritative. There may even be arguments that people have given to you when you've said, I trust in the Bible. At the end of the day, this is a trustworthy book that is authoritative, clearly and completely telling us about God and how we might find salvation and Jesus Christ. It doesn't give us the answer to every question. Well, guys, no book will. No book will give you the answer to every question. But on the subject of salvation and the truths of our faith, here we stand. We cannot do otherwise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the authority of your word. I thank you we can trust it. 
I thank you that we can build our lives around it. I thank you for, for men like Luther in the past, men and women who down through history have made bold statements, have stood boldly, have lost their lives by declaring that this book is true and that what, it, what is in it governs and dictates and defines how we live our lives. I pray you'd help us to be Christians in that mould, in that vein, like with Luther, say, here I stand on the word of God and cannot do otherwise. Lord, just fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with the truth of your word. Help us to see you, your son, our salvation in every verse, in every passage, in every part of this book. Amen. Amen.